0: section 17 of our search for a wilderness by mary blair bb this librivox recording is in the public domain one of the most delightful surprises on this trip was the boat songs of the blacks how we wished afterwards that we had written down the words and music at the time one melody remains clear in our memory the words of the songs were delightful one never-ending refrain imparted the original and thrilling information that a long time ago is a very long time another song was the stevedore's shanty then all would break out in a wild harmony that city hotel is the place where I dwell fare thee well fare thee well my city hotel my city hotel my city hotel the one of which we never tired was all about Selina, my dear and we made the men sing it over and over until they were breathless like all negroes they were full of spirits and childish humor their paddling was splendid but terribly wasteful of strength as at the end of each stroke they gave a strong upward jerk sending a shower of drops into the air our luggage ballyhoo was sometimes abreast of us across the river and when the sunlight was reflected from the eight circles of water thrown into the air at each stroke, the sight was a beautiful one. When we returned several weeks later, the shooting of these rapids was as exciting as had been the ascent. There was no slow difficulty paddling or dragging up of the ballyhoo, but a swift shooting downward, giving fleeting views of tall walls of verdure, innumerable islets, great smooth-faced rocks around which our canoe slid perilously close, her keel sometimes scraping the algae on the bottom. We shot here and there, from side to side of the river, back and forth, guided by the stolid-faced Indian in the bow. Now and then we would turn completely around in order to keep to a deep channel which bent on itself at an acute angle. Then a moment's breathing in slack water before the men gave way again, either to hold back with all their might or to put every ounce of strength into their work to keep the boat steady in her course, as we ran parallel to a double line of seething, trembling waves to enter which would have been instant destruction we would pass by a half-dozen smooth-looking false channels to enter the single safe one, perhaps far across under the lee of the opposite shore. A pilot not acquainted with every foot of the way would have overturned us instantly. The Indian would head our bow into the roughest part of the water, apparently in sheer foolhardiness, but always the waves broke under us and tossed us like a chip over the jagged rocks. A cross-current in the maelstrom would tear our bow out of its course, and at a cry from the steersman, all ten backs would bend as one, and fairly lift the boat back into her course. As before, macaws shrieked overhead, kakoi herons stood watching us like statues, and the little flying fish Rose from our bow and ploughed their furrows to right and left, but all passed as a swiftly moving kaleidoscope, as instantaneous side lights upon the great white tumbling mass of water, which ever boiled and surged about us. At noon on the day of our ascent, we entered the Big Aremu River, a side tributary of the Cuyuni, not more than a hundred feet wide, and an hour later we grounded at Aremu Landing. Here we said good-bye to Sproston's launch and paddlers, and from here on were transported by Mr. Wilshire's own men and boats. We slung our hammocks that night in an open-work, thatched, and wattled house, the company's storehouse, after a delicious swim in the cool water. No insects came about the vampire-discouraging lantern at night, and no evening choruses of birds were heard except a family of red-billed toucans. The iridescent, rough-backed green beetles, known to jewelry makers as Brazilian beetles, Mesomphalia discors, were abundant on a vine near the house. As on our former expedition on the rivers of the Northwest, we found that as the streams became smaller, their interest increased. The Kiyuni is awe-inspiring and grand beyond words, but the banks of the Oremu closing in little by little as we ascended brought us into more intimate contact with the creatures of jungle and forest. We started up the stream in an open ballyhoo of smaller size, at first with paddles, but changing to poles when the water became shallower. Snags, or Tacubas, as is the more euphonious native name, became abundant and sometimes stretched far out over our heads. Flying fish skimmed in all directions, and vampires, Desmodus rufus, in scores, flew from the dead branches projecting from the water. They choose a small-sized one, say two inches in diameter, and a light, one below the other, with heads raised, watching us. Like little animated sundials, they revolve on their perches as the sun passes over, keeping the wood between them and the bright light. Many of the snags had bits of dead leaves and other debris clinging to them, brought down and lodged by the last freshet, and it was not until we almost put our hand on them and the bats flew, that we could tell whether we were looking at a cluster of vampires or dead leaves. There were hundreds throughout the course of the river, so it is a widespread diurnal roosting habit of these fierce little creatures. The blacks in this part of the country call the vampires Dr. Blair's, after a certain colonial doctor of the olden times, whose favorite method of treatment was bloodletting. Swallows in the early morning filled the air above the river with a cloud of rapidly moving forms. Orchids in full bloom were abundant, long shoots of golden showers, the sweet Epidendrum odoratum, and many others unknown to us, all drenched with dew and filling the river canyon with fragrance. Three species of kingfishers and big yellow-bellied trogons appeared now and then, the trees were taller than any we had yet seen many of the morris and cumacus being much over a hundred feet from base to top at noon we stopped for breakfast in a primeval forest with rather thin underbrush many small scarab beetles Canthon semiopacus were resting in the hollows of leaves with their branched antennae raised waiting apparently for some hint of an odor which should summon them to their mission of life, the depositing of their eggs in decaying flesh. Spinning through the aisles made by the giant columns of tree trunks were curious translucent pinwheels, and not until we captured one in the butterfly net did we realize we were looking at the same attenuated forest dragonflies, mesistochaster species, which had deceived us so completely five years ago in mexico the movement of the long narrow wings with the spot of white at the tips was to the eye a circular revolving whirl with a needle-sized body trailing behind the white spots revolved rapidly while the rest of the wings became a mere gray haze these weird creatures apparently so ethereal and fragile hunting for spiders and their method was regular and methodical from under leaves or from the heart of widespread webs good-sized spiders were snatched a momentary juggling with the strong legs a single nip and the spider minus its abdomen dropped to the mold while the dragonfly alighted and sucked the juices of its victim if we drew near one of these spiders on its web It instantly darted away, sliding down a silken cable to the ground or dashing into some crevice. But the approach of the hovering dragonfly, although rather deliberate, was unheeded, the spider remaining quiet until snatched from its place. On a tiny jungle creek we alarmed several large blunt-nosed brown lizards with low dorsal crests which ran up into the branches to escape us. In this respect they differed from the big iguanas, which always dropped with a resounding splash into the water at our approach. Near some wild plum trees, whose fruit was ripe, we found tracks of deer, agoutis, and some of the smaller cats. The fruit was yellow and oblong in shape, with a large stone, and tasted the way a tonka bean smells bitter and yet sweet a strange concentrated essence of the tropics which excited one in that it differed so completely from the taste of any other fruit morphos became more abundant from this point on some were wholly iridescent blue above a blinding flashing mirror of azure others were crossed by a broad band of black while in a third species the blue was reduced to a narrow bar down the center of the wing. Great yellow swallow-tailed butterflies and exquisite smaller ones flew about us. The crocodiles of the aremu were all small, none over three feet, and were all black in color. As we went on, we were impressed with the amount of work which had been necessary to open up this river for the passage of ballyhoos, laden with mine machinery. Six months ago it had been impassable, except for small Indian canoes, and these had often to be dragged ashore and around, obstructions. Now the little channel had been opened, and although for the most part completely overhung with interlacing vines and branches, yet our ballyhoo wound in and out around the takubas with but little hindrance. The cost of opening it had been more than fifteen thousand dollars. Huge tree trunks had to be sawn through, but even then, the wood of many species having greater specific gravity than water, the trunks would sink to the bottom like stones, offering a greater obstruction than before dynamite was then used to clear them from the bottom of the stream. In the early afternoon a beautiful dull red passion flower on a climbing vine became common and we found that its fruit was edible and called by the natives Simitu, although apparently so much at home here, this plant known as the water lemon, Passiflora laurifolia, is really an escape from cultivation. The river twisted and turned in every direction and the banks were four to eight feet in height with sloping bars of sand on the inside bends. Palms were rather scarce, their place in appearance at least being taken by the tall slender Congo pump trees with deeply serrated rosettes of leaves. Tree ferns appeared in ever-increasing numbers and stretched their graceful fronds from the banks far out over our heads during midday silence filled these river glades both birds and insects resting quietly in the heat and the only sound was the regular scraping of the poles against the sides of the ballyhoo the heat was not oppressive except in the glaring sunshine on the water but such exposure was rare in these deeply forested recesses we had had no rain thus far and the temperature of the mornings and evenings was delightfully cool at night we could scarcely keep warm rolled in a hammock in a thick blanket unpleasant insects were entirely absent and yet we were traveling in the heart of a tropical wilderness which most of us have pictured as a sizzling steaming hot-house teeming with venomous reptiles and stinging bugs of all descriptions About three o'clock, the gold birds began calling, and some other species with a single loud whistle. A cormorant rose with heavy wing beats ahead of us, and when we flushed it the second time, we shot it. It was the little Guiana cormorant, only 28 inches in length, with eyes of dull green. A deer broke away from the bank at the sound of the shot and dashed off that night we made camp in the jungle a skeleton shelter roof of poles was thrown up over which was stretched a tarpaulin coming to within six or seven feet of the ground all around then a double row of stout stakes was driven into the leaf mold along each side and the hammocks slung from them they were springy and one swung not only sideways but with a slight end-for-end motion that made every movement easy. While we were making camp, we were hailed by a passing ballyhoo, the occupant of which proved to be Mr. Fowler, the head of the Colony Department of Lands and Mines, who had been at the mine on a tour of inspection and was now on his way back to Georgetown. Hospitable Mrs. Wilshire at once invited him to come over from his camping place further downstream and dine with us a dinner party in the bush we all shared the feeling of festivity the men hastily constructed a table of the trunks of young saplings while the rest of the party hung lighted lanterns from the overhanging branches directly in front of the camp was a tall straight copa tree draped with long hanging bush ropes dangling from the lowest branches, 70 or 80 feet up the trunk. The base sent out thin, far-reaching buttresses, the intervals between which formed natural seats and closets for our guns and bags. Mr. Fowler's Indian hunter brought in several curassows, which we added to the cormorant for dinner. Mr. Fowler had seen a Bushmaster, Vacheses mutus, a few hundred yards upstream the first poisonous snake of which we had heard on this trip. We had a merry dinner, Mr. Fowler telling us many an interesting story of his early days in the colony. The jungle around our camp was alive with sound all night, frogs chiefly, the wing-beating fellows, the heavily loaded freight engines, the bleating calves, and a new kind which raised its loud and continuous voice in choking roars. One's imagination pictured death struggles between man-like monkeys and other creatures. The qualities of human and bestial voices were so blended in this utterance. Vampires flew about back and forth under our shelter, but none bit us. So strange and wonderful was this night in the bush that for many hours sleep was impossible. Early next morning a light rain fell for an hour, and through it we photographed our night's camp. As the sun shone dimly through the mist, a chorus arose, wood-hewers, parrots, macaws, and in the distance the ever-thrilling moan of the red baboons. The last black pushed off with his pole about eight o'clock, and we settled ourselves for our last day of river travel. The stream became narrower and more diversified, in places not more than 25 feet from bank to bank, then spreading out to twice that width with strange keel-like sharp rocks projecting from its surface. We elbowed our way through a perfect maze of dovetailed tacubas and slanting tree trunks, which we went around or rubbed along or scraped over. Sometimes we all had to crouch flat down to the level of the gunwale to pass under a low trunk, or again even to climb out on to the log and down into the ballyhoo on the other side now and then a pole would be wrenched from a negro's hand as the current or impetus of the boat twisted it to one side or the man himself would be flicked overboard amid roars of laughter from his mates who when he climbed dripping on board again would inquire the cause for the sudden desertion of his post. These tacubas, which are really fallen trees, are the most apparent danger in the jungle, although the chances of accident from them are very slight. Along the bank were many slanting trees, bound sooner or later to give way. On our return journey down the Aremu, we passed, or rather scraped under, a huge trunk, which completely spanned the creek it must have fallen about two days before and we had to push through a perfect tangle of orchids and lianas tree ferns twelve feet high draped the banks spiders of weird shapes dropped upon us buoyed up by their long silken cables brush-tipped aerial roots dangling at the ends of plummet lines fifty feet long were drawn from stem to stern of the boat, and across the pages of our journals as we wrote. Half an hour after starting, we discovered a three-toed sloth, cholepus, high up in a tree almost over the water. Mr. Howell shot the creature, and we found it to be of large size, with long reddish-brown hair. The face, expressionless as it always is in these animals, had small eyes of a warm hazel color, Later, we had it cooked and found it quite palatable. In many of these tropical growths, the new or first leaf shoots are pale or brilliant red, this holding good in the case of the giant moras, several trees with locust-like foliage, and even the flat leaf vines, monstera or shingle plants crawling up the trunks. One small tree with entire leaves and covered with sweet-scented, tassel-shaped flowers had at least half its foliage of a pale yellow green. This is the spring of this region, in so far as such a region of never-ending warmth and moisture may be said to have a spring. On every hand, flowers were in abundance. All were unknown to us, but most were of large size and varied odor and color all the tales of the rarity of flowers in the tropics had not fitted in with our experiences in the course of three bends of the river during some fifteen minutes observation we observed the following in masses of sufficient size to catch the eye far off and add a decided color tone to the spot where they grew purple pea-blooms in wisteria-like bunches falling star-white flowers, pink two-petalled ground flowers in dense clumps, spider lilies, the large kind, red passion flowers, white tubular blooms, five-parted purple star-shaped flowers, wild cotton in enormous masses of bloom, resembling clematis and as fragrant, long thin racemes of very fragrant dull greenish-white flowers, brush-like purple blooms, white at the base, growing sessile on the trunks, with an edible fruit which the Blacks call Waika, This list is exclusive of all the many inconspicuous flowers and all orchids, which were seldom out of sight. Its value lies only in giving the faintest of hints of the wonderful beauty of these jungle water trails. On these upper reaches of the stream the two water birds most in evidence were tiger bitterns and great rufous kingfishers one could write pages trying to describe a single vista of this beautiful region and yet give only a hint of its charm in one place a mighty loop of a mighty bush rope or monkey ladder with ornate woody frills decorating the edges Hangs swaying high in air across the stream. Several other giant vines have caught hold and have wormed their way in serpentine folds along the first great swing. In the spaces between these huge living cables, seeds and parasitic plants have taken root and grown, filling up the network with their aerial bulbs and in turn furnishing root holds for an innumerable variety of flowers, ferns, orchids, mosses, and lichens. The mosses are long and fan-shaped like some species of coral, and the lichens are red, pink, gray, and white. The whole forms high over our heads an enormous hanging garden which no human ingenuity could duplicate. Two hours after starting, we reached the place called Two Mouths and turned into the little Aremu. In no place is this stream more than 25 feet wide, with low, sloping, sandy or clay banks facing steep ones, first on the right, then on the left side, according to the bend of the stream and the force of the current. As we went along, a splendid male crested Curaçao flew up and was shot to be added to our menu before we came in sight it was clucking softly a splash around a bend and sharp claw and toe marks showed where a capybara hydrochorus capybara had just entered the water and from here on we found such tracks common on every sandy bank we were amused at our steersman's occasional orders to the crew in places where the current was swift and poling was very difficult he would shout in a most woeful and despairing voice, "'Oh, Lord!' giving us quite a start. We eventually found that he was intending this ejaculation for pole-hard. Black-shelled mollusks were common on submerged logs, and on the banks above the water-line were scores of curious spiders and insects, while dragonflies of a half-dozen or more species darted swiftly about." Throughout the morning, we were never out of hearing of the hammering of woodpeckers, or the cooing of doves, or the laughing descending scales of woodhewers. The Chinese music of the cicadas came to our ears, a sound which recalled vividly the forests of Venezuela. The water was now at a medium level, but after heavy rains, when it is high, all the great tacubas six feet above our heads are submerged, and much of the land along the river banks becomes a swamp. Further upstream, when the water became very shallow and the stream narrowed to 12 or 15 feet, some of us left the ballyhoo in order to make the work of the blacks easier and took to the trail. After a 15 minutes walk, we saw the glimmer of sunshine through the trees and knew that we had reached the gold mine of the little aremu end of section 17 end of chapter 8 the water trail from georgetown to aremu